Now, let me just say a couple of things about the Ten Commandments in general before we get to the specific. Just to remind you, first of all, that these Ten Commandments were given by God as a source of blessing. They were not to be uh, solely restrictive just for restrictive sake. They weren't there to punish. They were to be blessings. God had this group of people who had just been rescued from bondage, and he was trying to teach them how to live in the best possible way. And so he gathers them around, and he gives them ten words, ten commandments about how to live the most blessed life possible in their new land that they're going to be given. And so he gives them these ten words, and over the last few weeks and in the next two or three weeks, we're going to talk about what they mean. They were for blessing, to have the best possible life. If you remember the first week, we talked about that they were to serve almost like guardrails. That guardrails allow you on a bridge to drive faster than if there were no guardrails because you'd be worried about falling off. That these were to be the guardrails of life that were to free us up to live in an amazing way for the Lord. And so the first thing to understand is they are a blessing from God. The second thing is that they are not a standard to which we can achieve our relationship with God. He did not give them to the Israelites and say, if you do all of these things, you will build back a relationship with me. Now, it it talks about it in there that, that they are to follow this and that he will bless them. But before he ever gives the Ten Commandments, he says to them, you are my people. I am your God, the one that rescued you. So the relationship came before the commandments. But these are to live in relationships with God the best we can. And then to understand that as long as you and I are living on this earth, in this body of flesh, before the coming of the kingdom of God, we will not keep all of these laws. We just won't. And so we come today understanding that these ten words are just as applicable today as they were thousands of years ago. And we're talking today about what could be the most controversial one of them all. Now, here's the interesting thing about it. The Bible talks a lot about that three-letter word that starts with an S, ends with an X, and has an E in the middle. Right? It talks a lot about it. In From Old Testament, New Testament, it talks a lot about it. But churches don't. In fact, I saw a study this week from a religious uh, polling institute that polled the topics that are being discussed in sermons in in churches in America today. And what they discovered is that the the one that we talk about the least, that is in the Bible the most, is sex. Because the church, we just don't talk about it. The Bible talks about it. God talks about it. We have decided we shouldn't talk about it. Uh, part of that comes from our culture. Uh, in the church in the years past, they just haven't had discussions about it. Years ago in church, it was taught that it was wrong, that it's bad, that it's not a good thing. I actually had a couple of, after the first service this morning, I had a couple of our senior adults who came up to me and said, I wish we would have talked about sex in church like that when I was a young person. Uh, they, we just didn't talk about it. They said they, we didn't have any discussion about it. My parents just told us it's wrong, it's bad, don't do it. There wasn't any discussion. Well, today we're going to talk about 
What is the commandment, don't commit adultery, mean? A couple of things we're going to talk about is what does adultery mean? What does it mean here? What does it encompass? Why is it such a big deal? And how do we apply it? All right? Let's start. Here he is in chapter 20, verse 14. It says, no adultery. Now, your uh, English version probably has you shall not or thou shalt not or don't commit. But it's just two words, no adultery. And in the simplest terms, the word adultery here means a voluntary sexual involvement between a married person with someone other than his or her spouse. Okay? That's a pretty plain definition. The basic definition is when you are in a married relationship and you have sex with someone outside of your spouse, that is adultery. And so the first understanding of this is simply that, the physical understanding of that. Now, there is in the Ten Commandments an understanding that's flows through it that there is a positive element always with the negative. And the understanding from this commandment is simply this, that when it says don't commit adultery, what it means is to build up your marriages as best you can. To, to do everything you can to protect them, to involve them, to, to help them. And so the underlying theme of don't commit adultery is build strong marriages. And so in order to build strong marriages, the term adultery here can actually be interpreted in a broader sense than just uh, a person who is married stepping out of their marital commitment. In fact, as you move throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, this commandment takes on an understanding from a Greek word. And there was a Greek word that meant any kind of sexual contact outside of marriage, and it was a word called porneia. Anybody recognize the first four letters of that? Porneia. Okay. It was any sexual activity outside of marriage. And as the New Testament kind of comes and uh, involves getting this idea more developed, what we see is that it becomes more than just when a husband or wife steps out of their marital relationship. It then becomes any, anything outside of the marital relationship. Anything. That includes premarital, homosexuality, prostitution, violence. Anything outside of marriage, no exceptions, no loopholes. That's what it means. Now, if it was just the physical acts that were covered in this commandment, like last week, it might be easier to keep. But Jesus came along. And in the same Sermon on the Mount where he talks about murder can happen in your mind, he says in Matthew chapter 5, You have heard it said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her in his heart. Now that seems almost, almost unrealistic. So the question is, is Jesus saying that if you have a thought, you accidentally see an image, that that is adultery. I don't think that's what he's saying. I mean, we live in a culture where it's everywhere, right? I was uh, watching college game day yesterday, football preview show, um, trying to figure out how badly Tennessee was going to get beat yesterday, right? Just wanted to prepare myself, and so I was watching, and... Eli had been had been kind of around and in there with us, and 
and Luke was running around. You know, they're excited about this weekend, and uh, Luke is going to be Luke Skywalker, and Eli is Django Fett, and so they're practicing their maneuvers on each other w- without costumes on. Just They're just wrestling in the floor, all right? And so suddenly this commercial comes on, and I don't even know what it's for. But it ends up that there is a man and woman. This is at 9.30 in the morning in bed together, laughing and joking, and it's just like 9.30 in the morning. Well, you it's almost impossible to filter all that stuff completely from coming past your mind. The point Jesus is making here is not about the thought or the image. It's what you do with the thought or the image. He's talking about the intentional, repeated indulging of thoughts and desires. He's talking about a gaze becoming an action. A look becoming a gay, something more intense. Uh, Martin Luther, who lived several hundred years ago, today is, uh, besides being Halloween, today is Reformation Day. I know you've all got Reformation Day cards and uh, parties planned for this afternoon, but uh, this is the day that Martin Luther started the Reformation, which led to churches like ours uh, coming into being several hundred years ago. Martin Luther is credited, along with others, of saying that I can't prevent a bird from flying over my head, but I can prevent the bird from building a nest. And the point there is we can't prevent every thought or image, but we can prevent it from nesting. Filling our mind with mental images, engaging in fantasies about desires, engaging in activities that fuel our appetite, suggestive comments, jokes that are inappropriate. Perhaps the most significant issue in American Christianity today is the influence of Internet pornography on our church members and our young people. I saw some things this week that just blew my mind. Do you realize that every second, 28,000 people are logging on to a pornographic website? Every second, 28,000. It is a $100 billion a year industry. This is what scared me. Nine out of ten children between ages 8 and 12 have been exposed to an inappropriate image on the Internet. Nine out of ten. 47% of elementary children who have an email account. Now, we can talk about elementary school children having emails accounts, but 47%, which is a large number of people that have them, 47% of them receive pornographic spam every day. That is scary stuff. You know, even when I was growing up way back then, right, Pornography was something that were on the edges of society. It was that shop that was in the area of town you didn't go to. It was the uh, the magazine that 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 was uh, delivered when nothing else was delivered. It wasn't in every home on your street. A recent survey at a college, a Christian college campus, found close to seventy percent of the males on that campus admitted to going online at school searching for pornographic images. Now, let me rephrase, let me say, point out something. 
That was near 70% admitted that they did that. It's everywhere. Let me just tell you, if nothing else happens out of this sermon today, can I ask you to do one thing? And that is to pray for our students and our children and our grandchildren because it's not going away. And this generation that's coming behind, and not, don't fool yourself, the, the largest number of people that are involved in this uh, percentage-wise is 20 to 30. The second largest is uh, 15 to 20, but right behind them is 30 to 50. It's not going anywhere, and it is crippling, crippling the effectiveness of our students and our children in their attempts to walk with the Lord. Mental adultery is so dangerous that Jesus said, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out, throw it from you. It's better for you that one part of your body perish than your whole body be thrown into hell. So you have physical adultery, you have mental adultery, but then the third kind is called emotional adultery. And emotional adultery comes when uh, you begin to seek out someone other than your spouse for emotional comfort. Your spouse, she no longer understands me, and my coworker does. Uh, uh, he doesn't. He doesn't pay attention to what I need anymore. And and, and my, this guy that I know down at the gym is just so sensitive to those kind of things. Those kind of conversations. Now, they may not say that that way, but when you begin to invest in other people of the opposite sex more than you're investing in your spouse, there are problems. When you begin to share things with other people of a opposite sex that are not things you wouldn't share with your spouse or you're not sharing with your spouse, there are issues. And emotional adultery uh, begins with married couple losing connection. More and more they become like roommates. They live separate lives. They don't communicate at a deep level. A wife no longer feels understood. A husband feels he can no longer share what's really happening. They meet somebody. We're just friends. What's wrong with that? It's nothing. There's no real, there's nothing there. Uh, she understands the pressure I live with. I can really talk with her. But gradually it leads to more. Now, the issue, I believe, when it says no adultery here, is that the adultery doesn't start when it leads to more. It starts when it's in the emotional stage. That's when it begins. It's developing any uh, kind of attachment with someone that's more than what you have with your spouse. You, you remember the marriage vows, right? If you're married, hopefully you remember at least some of your marriage vows. I started just to have to ask you to come up and recite them here, but uh, that may have caused some problems, so we're not going to do that, all right? But you remember it says, forsaking a few others, is that what it says? Forsaking some others, is that what it says? What does it say? Forsaking... All others. For how long? For three years? Five years? Fifteen years? You know, there are some people now. I've seen these uh, marriage vows that say, forsaking all others as long as our love shall last. That's baloney. It's not biblical at all. All right? So it says, forsaking all others, how long? Till death do us part. All right? And so it's the idea that, that you are giving yourself completely to the other person with no interference from the outside. And so that leads to the question, if we're talking about no sexual involvement outside of the marriage covenant 
why is that such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal? Why does God care about what happens in the homes of people all over the world? Why does God care about that stuff? I'm glad you asked. There are a couple of things, all right? First of all, here's some things. Here's some things the reason it's a big deal. First of all, because it distorts one of the greatest gifts God has ever given, and that is the physical intimacy between a husband and a wife. It's one of the greatest gifts ever. The biblical view of sex is that it is glorious and great and wonderful and amazing. Here's some things from Song of Songs. Anybody read Song of Songs lately? We read it in the one-year Bible, and that, that week we came on Wednesday night. They asked any, any questions. Some of you were in that. Any question you want to ask about Song of Songs? Um, is this symbolic? No. I mean, it is, but it's not, okay? Here's what, he, here's what the writer, it's a discussion back and forth between a loved and a lover, okay? Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Nothing symbolic about that at all. For your love is better than wine. I know we're Baptist church. We don't drink wine, but that apparently means it's pretty good. All right? It's okay to laugh even when we're talking about this. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are as doves. Now, that was a, that was a compliment. All right? You know, beautiful you are, my darling. How charming. Our bed is verdant. How delightful is your love. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spite. Your lips drip nectar. Honey and milk are under your tongue. I slept, but my heart was awake. My lover is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my dove, for my head is wet with dew. My locks with the drops of night. I have taken off my clothes. How can I put them on? I have bathed my feet. How can I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open my beloved. My hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh, as I reached for the handle of the bolt. We don't read that much in church, right? But is it symbolic? Maybe, but... That is two people who are deeply, passionately in love with one another. And that is what sex is intended for. For a husband and a wife. For a long time, the church taught that um, sex was utilitarian. It just had uses. It was for procreation. It was for having children, and that's kind of it. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says it's more than procreational. It is relational and recreational. It is to be enjoyed and it is to be good. So that's the first reason. Here's what C.S. Lewis said about it. It's kind of a strange, you have to stick with C.S. Lewis for a minute, but he kind of compares it. He says, The Christian idea of marriage is based on Christ's words that a man and a wife are to be regarded as a single organism. The male and the female were made to be combined together in pairs, not simply on a sexual level, but totally. The monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in trying to isolate one kind of union from all of the others were intended to go along with, they make a problem. The Christian attitude does not mean that there's anything wrong about sexual pleasure. It's just that when you do it, you separate it from what is important in life, from the commitment that is there. So the first reason that it's bad outside of marriage is because it was intended for marriage to be a great gift of God. The second reason is it is to be a 
uh, picture of us of what God's relationship to us, to us is. Throughout Scripture, God compares His relationship to us to a husband and a wife. And it's a big deal because He wants us to understand the symbolism that is there. Um, we're going to take the Lord's Supper in a few minutes. And I know you're thinking, how in the world is Lyle going to get from adultery to the Lord's Supper? How many of you ever heard a sermon on adultery on Lord's Supper Day? Yeah, me neither. All right? It's my first time giving one, too, okay? So, but here, I'm going to get there. I'm going to bridge the gap right now, all right? Get ready to you know, be amazed here. Um, when God made covenants with people in the Bible, he gave them symbols, right? When he made a covenant with Noah, what did he do? Rainbow. Thank you, somebody. There we go. Rainbow in the sky, okay? When he made a covenant with Abraham... He did circumcision, and there was also that, that kind of gruesome thing where he makes the covenant and he, he splits the animals in half, and Abraham walks through as if he's walking through with God. And so he makes these symbols, these covenants, right? We get to the New Testament. He's getting ready to go to the cross to be crucified. He's, gonna, uh, he's getting his disciples ready for what's about to happen. What does he do? He sits down, has a meal with them, and institutes the Lord's Supper as a reminder, as a covenant seal as a, a, a saying that you are affirming your covenant with me, okay? In a marriage relationship, sex is the covenant reminder. It is the symbolism of the commitment. It is the binding of two people, literally. I mean, the Bible says that, the, that Scripture teaches that we become one person in that. Someone has said that it is like covenant cement. It's like... Um, um, it's more than physical. It, it unites in body and soul. soul. Um, I saw this weird a- illustration. They said it was like super glue. All right? Anybody ever worked with super glue? All right? Anybody ever gotten super glue where it wasn't supposed to go? How many? All right? Uh, sex, they said, now, now this is, this is going to be, sex is like super glue. All right? When it's used properly, it forms a bond that is essential and strong. When it's used improperly, it puts things together that were never meant to be together, and it's impossible to break them apart without tearing up one of them. And the truth is that when you practice sex outside of a marital relationship, you are bonding what is not supposed to be bonded. And when you try to take it apart, it rips the soul and the person and shatters. That's why it's a big deal. It's a big deal because of the way God made us, and He made us in a, in a relationship to, to be with Him and to understand that, and also to be in relationship with one another. It's also a big deal because it breaks apart the basic structure of life, which is the family. When you... Uh, build any kind of civilization. I mean, we have nations, we have states, we have cities, we have neighborhoods, but the basic family structure is the family. The basic community structure is the family. The basic national structure is the family. And when you tear apart families, you tear apart the fabric of a nation, of a society. Uh, You've heard it before probably, but almost every great society that has fallen started with the breakdown of the family. And an earthquake is like, um, I mean, adultery is like an earthquake. There's an initial event, but, but the aftershocks can even be more destructive. And here's the last reason it's a big deal. Because of the spiritual 
ramifications. Whenever you engage in sexual activity outside of marriage, it hurts you spiritually. Perhaps the most famous adulterer in the history of the world. Isn't that a great title to have, place? Is David. Right? I mean, we all know about David. We know about David and Goliath. But generally, after you say, what do you remember about David? People say David and Goliath, maybe a man after God's own heart. But what's the next thing you remember? David and Bathsheba, right? David happens to be on a roof one day. He happens to look over, and there's a lady bathing over there. And he thinks, wow, calls her over, commits sin. And then David goes for an extended period of time carrying that sin. And there's a psalm that says, there's several places that you can see this, but there's one specifically that dates it in that time between David sinning and confessing his sin. And he says in there that my bones withered within me. The picture literally is a man who spiritually just dried up inside. When I read the statistics, uh, statistics like I read about Internet pornography, when I read statistics that say uh, Christian males under the age of 40, about 75 to 80 percent are involved in it, it's their best guess. It is no wonder that the spiritual soul of the church in America is withering, that it is just drying up on the inside. So how do we keep it? What do we do? First thing is you have to work diligently at your relationship with God. The first step to keeping this commandment is keeping the first and the second and the third commandment. It's working diligently with your relationship with God. Remember when Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife and she tries to get him to come in and he won't do it and he says, how can I do this and sin against God? His relationship with God was at a point that he wasn't going to let that happen. He didn't let his guard down. He didn't let anything get in with him. Now, let me say this. Be especially diligent at times when you are weak or you're struggling or you're tired or things haven't gone well in life, when you've disconnected from people around you, when you've kind of distanced yourself from others. Be especially careful then. The reason David finds himself on uh, the roof when he's not supposed to be there is because he didn't do what he was supposed to do. He wouldn't go out to war like he was supposed to go to war. And because of that, he disengaged. As a result, he ended up in a place he shouldn't have been. Secondly, pursue personal purity. Pursue personal purity. Proverbs 4 tells people, watch over your heart with diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. It always starts in your heart. Then it says, put away from you a deceitful mouth and put away devious lips. So the idea is that you start in your heart, it goes to your mouth. Then it says, let your eyes look directly ahead. Let your gaze be fixed straight ahead. Personal purity starts in your heart, extends to your speech, but it has an impact on what you look at. When you look at TV, at the movies, the Internet, when you see people pass by, when those thoughts come, what are you focusing on? And then finally, it says, watch the path of your feet and your ways will be established. So you connect again with God. You work on personal purity, trying to let God cleanse you. And then if you're married, here's the last step. Nurture and guard your marriage. Put hedges around your marriage. Put things up, barriers around your marriage. No secrets. Don't hide anything. Websites should be open to both. 
Facebook, open to both. Emails, open to both. Checking accounts, open to both. Don't be hiding stuff. When you start hiding stuff, things get messed up. Uh, As a pastor, one of the things that I've committed to to just help guard my marriage, even from innuendo from outside, is I don't ever... uh, I don't ever counsel a lady in my office with the doors all shut. I don't ever ride in a vehicle by myself with another lady. Now, I don't, that's not because I, don't, I think something's going to happen. I don't want to be driving down the road and people see me and start talking. I don't want that to creep in. It's just an easy thing. So I build that guard around it. I want to conclude today talking to two groups of people. And the first group is if you're here and you're not married, which is quite many of you. I want to stress to you how important it is for you to understand the discipline you use now in preparing for marriage later. We live in a world that tells us, get everything now. But the way that you show self-control now will work benefits in your marriage later. Some people think, well, once I get married, it won't be a problem. That's not true. Not true. And what you're able to hold back now will make you stronger in your fidelity in marriage. And then if you're here and you're struggling in this area, let me just say from the statistics, it would suggest that many of you here are struggling in this area. Now, the truth is, I probably wouldn't have any clue about it. The person sitting next to you probably have no clue about it. People around you, no idea. But the truth is, just from all the statistics we see, there are several of you that may be involved in it. And what I would say to you is this, is first of all, Scripture teaches over and over again that if you're dealing with this, you are not alone. One of the things the enemy will try to do is to separate you and say, you're the only one dealing with it. You're the only one having it. That You're the only one that's, that's looking at that. Nobody else is. You are not alone. In the Bible, you had David. You have Solomon who, who had problems with it. You have the woman caught in the midst of adultery, right? That's a title she's given. You're not alone. Secondly, forgiveness is possible. You bring it to the Lord. You say, listen, I, I need you, Lord. I'm at the problem here. Uh, one of the things that that we need to understand as we talk about the cross in a moment we do the Lord's Supper, one of the things that the cross was intended to do was not to make us hide our sin from the Lord. Sometimes we think once we become a Christian, that means we just got to learn how to hide our sin better. What the cross means is that we can openly bring our sin to the Lord because His blood has already covered it. We shouldn't run from Him. We should run to Him with our sin. Now, that doesn't mean that it won't be uncomfortable at times, but you run to him in those moments and so you come to him and you confess and then thirdly the thing is you need to understand is that you can change change is possible if the lord works through you let me give you a site it's a website that that uh, has been up for a few years now um, and it is specifically designed to help church people or anyone that's dealing with these issues it's pretty easy to remember if you don't want to write it down so the person next to you sees you write it down. It's pretty easy to remember. It's xxxchurch.com. Triplexchurch.com. Started by a group of people that wanted to minister to those in the porn industry. 
But what they have now developed is a whole website to help people who are dealing with it. On their website, you can find um, accountability software. You can find filtering and accountability software. If you've got a family and you've got a family computer and you want to find filtering and Internet uh, accountability software, that's there. There are resources. If you, you can take tests to see if, if this is an issue for you. You can uh, go through even some counseling stuff online for that. Uh, there are lots of resources on that site, triplexchurch.com. Some videos on there. You can see how prevalent it is and ways that you can get out. But let me just encourage you. The worst thing you can do if this is an issue for you is to do nothing. Now, let me say, if you think it might be an issue, you need to begin to discover some resources to help. The seventh commandment is simply no adultery. And it sounds real simple, but in a world where it's everywhere we look, it's more difficult than it seems. One of the interesting things about Scripture is over and over again, God uses the image of adultery to talk about His people. Uh, one of the most interesting books in the Bible to me is the book of Hosea. And Hosea was a prophet of God. Uh, God called him to be a prophet. And then he tells him to go marry somebody, right? Who's he tell him to marry? Gomer, right? Good name. What is, and what's Gomer's profession? She's a prostitute, okay? So Homer, uh, so Homer, that would be, that would be Jose, that would be their, like, you know, Brad Pitt and Angelique, you know, mixed name, Homer. Uh, Hosea and Gomer, they, uh, <laughs> that's Freudian slip there, Homer. Hosea and Gomer uh, get married, and as they get married, what does Gomer do? She leaves him, right? When she leaves him, God says, go get her back. Literally, go buy her back. She leaves again. He goes and gets her. And the message that God is communicating through Hosea is this. That's an amazing thing for me to think about. That no matter how many times or how far we run, as believers in Jesus Christ, with a relationship with Him, He is always wanting to pull us back. I mean, when we sit and we, we do the Lord's Supper and we talk about His sacrifice on the cross, it just amazes me that He knew how we would loyally mess things up. I mean, there is nothing that has caught Him by surprise. And it's not just sex. It's all of the good and wonderful gifts that He has given us that we have distorted and changed and messed up. And He knew it. And he knew that even after we came to a relationship, a saving knowledge of who he was, that we would continually mess up again. And yet, that did not deter him in the least from going to the cross for us. And so sometimes when you talk about this issue, especially in churches in the past, it's been a thing to shame you, to guilt you. Don't be doing that. Don't, ha don't worry about that. Don't think about that. You think about it, it's wrong. But the message of the cross is, even if you're in the midst of this, it's not something to hide from God about. It is something to come freely to Him with. And if the cross teaches us anything, it's that God loves us even in our ugliness. And so this morning, in a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. If the Lord leads, I'll be here. I can talk to you. We can pray. The, the, It'll be open here at the front if you want to pray. 
But I just would ask, if you're there and this is an issue for you, that you would begin the steps of allowing God to change you and to purify you.